And so that, that area in there uh, was called the Fort of the Women. Uh, so the women and, and children especially would go, and that was an area where they were especially you know, to, to be able to go and worship and to pray. And so the Fort of the Women, as we would see, a connection uh, in contemporary uh, our churches is the nave. The nave is the body where the pews are, uh, is where the faithful gather. And so, uh, continuing a little bit deeper in, you see there's a little, little arched gate at the end of that, moving deeper into the picture. Uh, that is known as the Fort of the Priests. That's where the, uh, that's where the men would go and offer the sacrifices. Because in the Jewish, in the Jewish faith, every man was uh, some degree a priest. So he was a priest of his households. Uh, so the priest, he, as a priest, would go into the, into the sanctuary to offer the sacrifices. Uh, and so whenever it came time uh, to offer the various spiritual offerings, it would be the, the, the head of the household man who would go forward as the priest of the family. And so we see that the court of the priest is the place where, uh, where the sanctuary is for us. Kind of a, a set-apart place, not entirely set-apart. Here they've got whole walls that are built up. Uh, but we do have a kind of setting uh, where the particular things of the worship of God, adoration of God, and even sacrifice of mass takes place in the center of towards the front. One goes a little bit deeper into the holy place. The holy places was the place where the, where the priests who were vested as priests who were the high priests. They were the ones who would go to be able to enter into the holy place to be able to offer offerings of incense, on the altar of incense. Um, they, had, they had candles that were lit uh, in, the, in that inner sanctuary. Uh, so they had to make sure the candles stayed lit, and they had what they called the showbread. Uh, they had this miraculous, this wonderful gift of bread that they kept on the altar, 12 loaves of it, reminding themselves of the 12 tribes, so the bread kind of represented the whole people. And so the, the high priests were the ones who would go and administer, make sure the offering was offered with incense, the candles were lit, and the bread was cared for and, and renewed uh, according to the rules of the day. And so that place for us would be like the holy altar in the center, uh, where we have the incense is offered, the candles are lit, and uh, the gift of the Eucharist uh, is renewed each day in the holy house. And the greatest, the greatest of the places in the temple, if you see that, uh, that high that high area uh, in the back of the temple, that was partly the holy place. But inside that, there was one small room, a very small place where they had holy holes. Uh, a tabernacle of God, a place where God dwells. Uh, and they called the Ark of the Covenant. And so they, they understood it as this is the place where God dwells, in this spot. And so one time each year, one man would go in, and they would take an offering uh, of the, the blood of the wolf, and they would offer it, and they would sprinkle it in there. Uh, and so it was one person, one time a year. So if you all remember the story of Zechariah, whenever he goes, uh, he's struck mute because he sees an angel. Uh, whenever John the Baptist, whenever they say John the Baptist is going to be born, uh, that's where Zechariah was. He was in the Holy of Holies, and and everybody everybody was concerned because he was taking a lot. And there's an interesting fact. Thankfully, we don't do it anymore here. Uh, whenever they, whenever the priests would go in, they were so concerned because only one man could go in only one time a year. But if you got on the spot, you got a lady here, you're going to get him out. And so what they started to do is they would actually tie a rope to his foot. And they would have bells. 
they would have bells around the bottom of his robes, so that when he would move, they could hear the bells. And if they didn't hear the bells for a while, they could just start pulling the rope and getting back out. So it's kind of a strange thing, but it's a reality. That's what they did. Uh, so obviously they took their worship very literal and very serious. Uh, so even even to the, the tying of bells and the tying of ropes, uh, again, thankfully we don't have to tie a rope from my foot and fishing out of the sanctuary. But that holy of holies, that place where one was called to go once time a year off to get God, it was, it was recognized and understood as the dwelling place of God. And for us, it's a tavern. And you see, the movement is the same. The court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the priests, the sanctuary, the holy place, and the holy of holies, far beyond. And so, the church, wherever you walk into it, it necessarily moves in those same ways. Because we've been doing this for a long time. Right? Well over 3,000 years. And so it's a, a reminder to us as we enter into this, into this place that this is the place that, that God himself has given us a blueprint to be able to work from. So that we can come and enter into a church and it speaks something to our soul. It has power of itself. There are three kind of basic principles in the understanding of what makes a church a church. What, what are the, the essential things? And it's not, it's not the stuff that's inside of here. The general attributes of a church. One of which is that a church is permanent. We don't set up tent churches too much these days. Right? We build something, we consecrate it. We make sure it's in stone. We, we put up walls, we put up roof, we put up solid things that last for 100 years more. Because it's meant to be a perpetual place of worship. The house of God is not just a, a transformative thing where you can just kind of move it and make it into something different. It will always be a place that evokes reverence in the heart. You know that in some places they're selling, they're selling churches because they, they don't have uh, the funds to keep up with it. They don't have the communities there to be able to worship so there's nobody at the churches sometimes. Uh, and like in some places they have two, three, four churches a block apart from each other, which is kind of excessive, huh? It's interesting because sometimes they'll sell those churches. But even when you walk into this building that they now see as a restaurant, you walk in and you still know that it's a church. Something about the building that strikes you. And you can look around and you can see this is a church. That's one of those things. There's this permanence about it. That even if they try to use it for something else, you still know the depths of your heart. This is the place to worship God. At least it was intended so. It's up to the bricks of the wood. Now you can be able to do it. And so, permanence is one of the first steps. One of the first attributes of a church. And so it's something that is, again, a consecrated place for the worship of God. The second thing is height. Oddly enough, the majority of churches that you see, especially the if you look at the, the, big, the big cathedrals all throughout, all throughout Europe and, and, and even the cathedrals of most, most of the ICC pick, they always have a large, tall church. Oftentimes they have tall bell towers, they have tall steeples, they'll have large domes. All of these, this, this vertical reality is built into it to be able to walk into a church and immediately draw you up. 
church by its, by its physical structure makes us look up to God, look up to the heavens. And so it's a beautiful thing that the churches are intentionally built with all roof. And that's not just so that they eat in their eyes and have a full revival, right? But it, it is a reality that they necessarily, whenever you have a color building, whether you need to or not, whether you want to or not, you necessarily walk in and go, wow. <laughs> right? It just happens. And so that's, that's part, of the, part of the beauty of, of the churches, too, is it, is it draws our eyes up to heaven. I love the fact that we have here in our own church, in the center at the top, as your eyes are immediately drawn up uh, as you walk into our church. A wonderful thing. Wonderful. So our eyes are lifted up to the heavens. And the third thing that is, is important as kind of an integral thing in a church is iconography. Icons. Art. Not icons specifically, but some sort of art. So it's the nature of the church to have beautiful things contained within it. Whether it's stained glass, whether it's statues, whether it's icons, whether it's mosaics on the walls, whether it's little, little frills and little flowers painted here, there, and everywhere. It's part of the nature of the church to be able to have beautiful things. Because those things speak to our hearts. And even if we don't understand it sometimes, we may not know what it is about, but it's still beautiful. We have to be able to explain all these things, but it's so precious to heart. So it's another of those aspects that makes the church truly to be a church. So we have, again, permanence, verticality, and height, and then iconography. It has things uh, that nourish our soul. So that's our starting point. And so uh, if you look uh, on the back of the paper of the little thing, basically, it has uh, a kind of snapshot from the top of what the temple looks like. And so I have a little red arrow uh, up here in the top. Well, for me, it's red, for y'all, it's gray. It's black and white, so. The little arrow at the top, if you, if you look at the picture side, it, the arrow shows you the angle you're looking at, at it from. So the picture, you would turn the paper kind of like this, and if you're holding up the arrow, that's what the picture showing you, is the cork around it, and you can see the thing. So, just kind of try to be a little helpful, helpful addition there. So, this is our starting point. This is, this is where we began centuries ago, whenever the church initially started. Uh, we weren't able to go immediately build a building because we were being persecuted. You don't exactly, uh, well, you don't exactly, first, you don't start off a building, a huge building, when you have like a, a dozen guys who are going out to, to go all over the place. You know, they, weren't, they weren't intentionally staying put in a certain sense. So, to start with, they kind of weren't even concerned about architecture because their message was go make disciples. And they were pretty sure that Jesus was coming back any moment now. And so they weren't worried about necessarily building a church. They went as quick as they could, as many people as they could, and evangelized at whatever cost, because they were pretty sure that Jesus was coming back maybe a few years, maybe a decade tops. Right? And so they took very seriously this call to go out and make disciples. That's why you know, they, they knew that they did endure anything and everything because 
most of you sitting in the media, as many people as possible to know about this Jesus. Remember the disciples, first, first apostles and disciples started to die. The others in the church looked at them and they go, well, obviously we were kind of wrong on the date that he was coming back. So things kind of grew from there. And the Jewish, the Jewish faith was still very, very, very much a part of their life, part of their worship. Uh, they still went to the temple to talk and to pray. They still, you know, visited the synagogues and did some of the things that normal Jewish men and women did. And so eventually, uh, we had persecution for people being killed and all this kind of thing. So again, you don't set up a church and put up, you know, Peter's Catholic Church. And that would be the sign of, hey, come get us, please. Right? And so they had home masses, so they had masses in, in people's homes. Uh, various places, sometimes in the homes, these types of things. But eventually, in the fourth century, whenever we were finally able to um, to come above ground and not be not be immediately killed for it, we immediately see churches springing up, and they always have similar style. Again, you have you have all throughout the ages, so there's no one particular style. Of, this is a Catholic church. And you've got Roman S, and you've got Baroque, and you've got Gothic, and Neo-Gothic, and uh, you know, all kind of other different types of churches. But all of them have in common these same types of things. The permanence, the verticality, the beauty of the power. And they all have this orientation that whenever you walk in, you're immediately led to the Lord. Going to the holy of things. And so, Kind of the introduction of, of church. Going about the ages, of course, they started to, to branch out. The original churches were more or less just, just straight basilica styles. Uh, a Roman basilica was a long, straight building. Uh, so the majority of them were just a long, straight building. Sometimes they had a curve at the end of them. Uh, and so you went in, and, and that was it. Uh, it was just a long building. And, if you got to mass late, uh, you stood in the back, and if you got to mass early, you stood in the front, I guess, I don't know exactly what their approach was at that time, because uh, they, they didn't have pews. That's the fun part. Uh, they didn't have pews at church, so you just went and you stood, or you knelt, or you sat on the floor, or you made do with whatever happened to be uh, available that day. Uh, maybe they brought a little, a little seat chair or something. But that was, that was part of the history of the church. Uh, was typically, they were just a long, a long straight building. Uh, later on, they began to develop the style of what we have here at St. Anne, namely the cruciform church, the makes a cross. Uh, so they took, they took the long, the long end, and they added another, another beam across it, uh, so that you become, you look at it from above, cross. And so the physical church speaks of the reality of who we are. We are Christians. Uh, we even, even if they're in the heavens, they can see that we are Christians. This place, other station, again, is a Christian house of power. And so it's a beautiful thing for us to come and enter into that because the fact that we come and we, and we reside in this place, it shows the reality of exactly what we do. That the cross was planted in the world, was planted in the dirt of the mountain, right? And so the foot of the cross ends where the world is. And then the people gather. We, the body of Christ, we gather on the cross. It's the body of Christ. 
and then the priest who is representative of Christ the head in the celebration of liturgy, he ascends to the altar to be Christ the head in the celebration of the sacred liturgy. And so when we celebrate Mass, the body of Christ literally comes together in the church and climbs on the cross once more to give ourselves to God, to offer ourselves to God. Now how much on Sunday? To give yourselves to the Lord, to put everything on the altar? We need it. We need it in our very bones and our structure of our own. We come and we place ourselves to the cross, to give ourselves to Christ. It's a wonderful thing that this, that this building speaks to us, even just in its bones. And so, it's a great starting point uh, for us here. So, uh, I want to get into the windows before it gets too dark outside. And we can't see the windows. And so we have uh, we have these little these little pamphlets here. Uh, we can thank Sister Katie, we pray for Sister Katie uh, for her work and uh, and her patience putting these together. And so we try try to make it uh, rather sensible to start with that she open it up and immediately uh, you've got the picture of the church, which you see is the cross and a whole lot of numbers indicating where the various images and artifacts are. Uh, the rest of those numbers down at the bottom indicate the various items, statues, and, and lights, and images, and kind of things. And then the, uh, the inside text is an explanation of each of the images. So, I'll just go ahead and start. We kind of dive into the windows and make our way around a little bit. Circular order, so we'll go around. Uh, first one, 
is to our left and back here is the agony in the garden. So I'll just read you the insertion of the paper after the Last Supper, the Lord went with his disciples to Mount of Olives. And there in the garden of Gethsemane, he knelt down and prayed to the Father, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. The image shows the Lord about to accept the child's suffering from the hands of the angel of God. The crescent moon, which reflects the light of the sun, is shown at the top of the window. The crescent moon is symbolic of the Blessed Mother who always reflects and radiates the light of Christ and joins in his sufferings, fulfilling the scripture, the sword will pierce through your own soul too. In St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 35. Directly above the moon is the hand of God, indicating the passion of Christ was not a sign of God's powerlessness, but instead of his immense power that can conquer even the greatest evils. Peacocks at the bottom panel are ancient signs of immortality, attesting to the power of Christ to rise from the dead. Waking from the chalice of the host, we are reminded that the Eucharist brings us eternal life and unites us to Jesus even in our sufferings. So you see the purple flowers there too, also uh, purple the sign of sorrow and penance. Uh, so it is uh, in a sorrowful place. But a sorrow filled with hope and about grace. Again, you know, each of the, each of the windows have multiple parts, and there's usually that top, top little metal, little medallion, there at uh, the head of the feet, and then there is a uh, part down at the bottom. So it's always, there's always a lot in it, which is a beautiful thing just to be able to come and sit and pray and meditate. Greek letters 
for basically A and Z. So when the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I am the beginning and the end, he means I am the A to Z of everything. I am all. Uh, so the, the Alpha and the Omega there, uh, Alpha being the A, Omega, uh, the loop around it, is the symbol there. Overlapping, they are counted with a crown. This recalls the words of Revelation 1 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The depiction of our Lord is uh, with his hand raised high and blessing as a sign of victory as well. His left hand is clinging to the banner of the cross. Uh, so he's, he's holding the staff uh, with the flag of the cross on it, uh, which is also shining, showing the, the, the source of this victory uh, with the, the white cross there on the flag. Around him are the traditional Easter lilies that we often love to see and smell, uh, which indicate the Easter resurrection, but also the purity of the resurrected body of the Lord. It was pure and holy, entirely sanctified, glorified. The bottom panel, down at the bottom, reminds us of the message of the, of the angels uh, that he is not here. You see the angel there at the bottom, maybe two, as well. Uh, below, the, below the commemoration line, commemorate uh, up. Below that line are two pomegranates, uh, symbols of unity of the church. Uh, so right down there at the very bottom, uh, there's two little uh, two little pomegranates, it's, uh, orange with a red interior. Uh, and so it's a sign that there is uh, there's great diversity because there are a whole whole slew of uh, seeds and such inside the pomegranates. Uh, where they're all contained in one. And so it's, uh, it's a sign that the kind of seeds uh, that are found in a single body, which is the fruit of the resurrection. So all of us, though we may be individual seeds, uh, will one day be joined together uh, as resurrected brothers and sisters of Christ and our bodies again as we ascend into heaven. Uh, the sword there, like I said, uh, but I'll read out here on this side. Uh, the sword is a reminder of the uh, guards who are at the tomb. So the angel, the angel is there with the message. The sword represents the guards uh, as the Lord coming forth. Continuing on, we have our third window here, which is the Holy Family. The Holy Family of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, shows us that our faith is not only carried out in church, but it is essential in the home as well. Joseph uh, is given instruments of manual labor. Uh, Mary is given instruction on the life of faith. Uh, and then both of those shows the important role that parents have both in raising up their children in the ways of the world as well as in the ways of faith. The two doves uh, there symbolize peace and purity. Uh, they are embodied by all three persons to recognize them and be as, uh, as holy and sinless. The lamb overhead at the top with the white banner uh, featuring the red cross, much like the resurrection scene of our Lord here, shows that the role that the seemingly normal boy 
will one egg by saving the whole human race from sin. The trifold and reap of, reap of leaves at the bottom. So the trifold is the blue uh, with the circle and the three. Three circles come together and you're missing other parts of each of the circles down there at the bottom. Uh, so that triflow, which is the, the blue section in the middle, and uh, the green area around this, uh, which is these, uh, the two of them uh, point to the fact that the child is a member of the Trinity, uh, three coming one together in a, in a circle. So that's what the blue is a sign of the Trinity. Uh, so we show that, that the boy is a member of the Trinity. And yet he will also endure our sorrow for crowning with the thorns. Uh, and so the grief is, is a reminder of the crown that he will one day wear on his head. So the family shows us uh, how it is that God reversed the wrong done by Adam and Eve and ultimately alluded to by the apple. So up there, very top, little apple. And so the apple was the starting point of the separation of the family from the Lord. And then we have the apple with the new family, uh, the new Adam, the new Eve, the St. Joseph representing the Father's, the Father's presence with us, uh, the new being we have a fresh heart uh, for the church on earth. So uh, notice there's no, there's no bite marks out of the apple now. So uh, they resisted the temptation. So. So we'll go there, and our next, our next set is actually, we continue up to the front, so we'll go around these on this side. Two verses two to three. So you see the, um, the 
flames coming down. There's little, little tongues of fire there. Uh, and it's kind of in a swirling pattern, a rushing wind uh, as it descends upon them. This event marked what we understand as the birthday of the church, when the grace of God was poured out through the Holy Spirit. The anchor at the top of the window, the very top portion uh, in the blue there, uh, the anchor is an ancient sign of hope because uh, it's our firm, our firm foundation. It keeps us, it keeps us in place. Uh, so our hope is, is in Christ, and so our hope is there. The X on the beam is uh, the X is um, the first letter of the Greek name of Christ. Uh, in Greek, it's Christos uh, with an X, as we see on the next line there. Uh, on the next page, X D I C T O C. Uh, it will be not pronounced Christos. And so the X up there at the top is basically reminding us that Christ is our hope. That Christ is our anchor that keeps us in a firm foundation. The boat down there at the bottom of the image uh, is a sign of the church. The church is referred to as the new ark. Right? So in the, in the Old Testament, uh, people were saved by, by getting into the ark, and they passed through water, and they were saved uh, to, to the life that was come afterwards. In the same manner, the church is the ark by which people come into the life of the church and find salvation by the grace of God and work in the sacraments. And so down there as well, uh, the boat is led by the cross. Uh, so it's got the Greek cross there. Uh, and it is topped with the Greek form of the name of Jesus. I-H-C-O-U-C, or O-Y-C, uh, as you see in the window. And that would be pronounced Jesus. Uh, so if you... You see that sometimes on vestments, you'll see IHS on the back of them. Uh, that's kind of a, a tweak on that same thing uh, because the C is pronounced like it's an S. So IHS actually is the, the equivalent of IHCOIC. So whenever you, see, whenever you see it, it says Jesus. So that's why when you see it on the vestments of a priest, it means He's acting in the person of Christ. He is Jesus here in our midst, um, in our prayer. And so we have that uh, a nice little piece there. And so we, uh, whenever we hear about Pentecost, oftentimes we think it's just the disciples, just the twelve. Uh, but then we recognize the scriptures do tell us that Blessed Mother was there and there were other disciples. Uh, and so we have Blessed Mother, uh, who is, uh, we refer to her as the spouse of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so she gave herself wholly and entirely to God. So the church has referred to her as that uh, throughout the centuries. And so in a sense, she kind of has pride of place uh, in the reception of the Holy Spirit. She's already received God in, in her womb, right? Uh, so she's already more than prepared uh, to receive the Holy Spirit into her soul. Uh, so that Blessed Mother there kind of takes a center, a center role. And the two disciples down there at the bottom represent uh, the apostles and the others who were gathered there recognized it was both men and women both gathered together in prayer waiting for the Spirit to come. Next up, we have the baptism of the Lord. John the Baptist was preaching repentance when from the midst of the crowd, Jesus himself walks forward to be baptized. John attempts to have the world reversed, but Jesus prevents him, saying, Allow it now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Upon his washing in the waters of the Jordan, the skies opened up, 
and the Holy Spirit descended on Christ in the form of a dove. So you see the dove there in the window coming down upon him. And the voice of the Father was heard, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So the shelf at the top of the window, and that's uh, in that upper little medallion, includes three small drops of water, recognizing that we are indeed baptized in the Trinitarian formula. Uh, we're baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So it includes the three drops, representing one for each person uh, in which we are baptized. At the bottom of the window, uh, the image of the fish uh, is there. The fish is a symbol, an ancient symbol for Christ. And I'll get into that in just a second. Uh, it also has the double meaning of symbolizing a human person uh, who cannot find life without, uh, without, its, without being in the water of baptism. So you take a fish out of water, it doesn't live. You take us and you know, keep us from the water of baptism, then we don't experience the joy and the fullness of life uh, to which we are called. And so the fish represents Christ, but it also represents us and our need for Christ. Uh, who is our, our living water. And so uh, the cross and the crown, which are next to the fish, uh, point to the baptism with which I am baptized. Uh, remember he was talking with uh, James and John, or the mother and James and John, depending on which gospel you read, and they're, they're, they're asking to be seated at his right and his left. He says, do you really want to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? And they're like, absolutely! But they didn't know what they were saying. Because the baptism of the Lord was truly on the cross. That's where his baptism is. Because for us, uh, our baptism takes place in water, because that's the place where the forgiveness of sins comes for us. But that source of that power to forgive sins in the water comes from the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us on the cross. So he was baptized in his blood. Uh, so we are able to be baptized um, in the water. And so we have cross down at the bottom and a red medallion uh, with the cross and the wreath and the little crown around it. Now I mentioned that uh, that the fish was an ancient symbol of, uh, of Christ. I'm sure most of y'all have seen, maybe some of you have, the Jesus fish on your car. Uh, a little, you know, just kind of a simple bare bones type fish. And that was actually an important thing in the early church because they, you know, they they love to take things and, and add symbols to them. Obviously, as we're going along, every window has a whole variety of symbols uh, in them to help us look a little bit deeper. And so one of the, one of the symbols that they used was actually the literal letters of, of fish in Greek were I-X-O-Y and then the sigma, um, which each of those letters, they made it a sort of Greek. Uh, in Greek, so the, the Greek word is ichthus, uh, so the i, the i, uh, would be yesus. So like the, you see over there, the i-h-c-o-y-c, the i, ichthus, and fish, uh, would be Jesus. The k, ich, so the k sound, uh, is the x, uh, which means Christ. So ich would be Jesus Christ, the sound, which would be a TH for us, uh, that center sound of TH is the Greek form of God is Theos, Jesus Christ, God. The next, U, 
the Wu part is Huyong's, Huyong's, which means Son. So Jesus Christ, God, Son. And the last one is Sigma. Uh, the Sigma was the sign that they would call Soter, which means Savior. So when someone would draw the fish, what also would happen is they would draw, it was kind of like a test. If you were really a Christian, you could draw half of the fish, and it just looked like an ark. And the other person, if they were also a Christian, would draw the rest of it to complete the fish, which was saying, you and I both believe Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. So when you see a fish on the car, you're speaking Greek, and it's all kind of deep stuff. So it's a beautiful, a beautiful ancient symbol of faith. Uh, so if it's if you look at the fish and like it's Greek to me, it literally is Greek to you. Uh, so that's that's part of the beauty of it. Is that is the symbolism there? Um, and again, how how things that are so normal for us. I mean, if we look at the fish and we know that it's a Jesus fish, right? I mean, we understand the symbolism. But to be able to look at that that deeper part kind of helps to open our eyes. Ooh, that's a whole lot more than just a fish. Ooh. So it's a, a neat little, a neat little addition. So at this point, we'll transition over to the windows on the opposite side. If you want to get closer, you're welcome to it. If you want to stay here, that's fine with me. Where is this king that's supposed to reign forever? Where is the promise of God? Uh, 
So this window reminds us of that promise. Um, it's you know, kind of subtle down there at the bottom. Uh, There's the fact that he comes to be able to reign, with, uh, to reign forever, and he would reign over heaven. You see in the, in the circle there, the moon and the stars. He would reign over heaven. And the greenery down beneath it, alongside the tree, means that heaven would also be the king of earth. Great king that they had been waiting for for centuries comes to be announced to Mary by the angel Gabriel, uh, the king of all heaven and earth. Moving on to the next window here, number seven there is the presentation at the temple. The Jews had long desired the seed of Christ. And the morning star rises over Anna and Zechariah. So the orange and red at the top is the morning star. Uh, the morning star being the one that shows you that, that the sun is about to come up. It's the, the brightest one still shining in the sky, in the sky uh, as, as we know that the, the day is about to begin. So the morning star is there over, over Anna and Zechariah, who are waiting at the temple to show that the new day uh, has come when Christ would hear. Joseph offers the two turtle doves required for sacrifice to behalf the child. And the fact that he offers two turtle doves means that they were poor. Because if you were if you were not poor, you offered a, a, a better animal, an animal of greater value. But if you didn't have the money, you could at least offer two turtle doves. And you could, you could make at least a small offering for money. And so whenever they offered the two turtle doves, it was a sign of the poverty of the Holy Family. Uh, they, they didn't just, you know, kind of give a little bit, but they were you know, truly uh, the poorest of the poor in their own time. A subtle hint of sorrow is shown uh, there in the image of the iris up there at the very top of the window. Uh, the purple iris, also known as the sword lily, uh, there at the top is a symbol of the resurrection uh, but again, because of the purple color, it also has a sorrowful undertone. Uh, so it's, it's sad, but it's, it's sadness filled with hope. Uh, and so it's the same thing that we see in the window itself. Uh, the heavy words were spoken, your heart too of sorrow shall pierce, uh, but they be fulfilled when Mary, as mother of sorrows, uh, would set herself beneath the cross of her son. So not to sorrowful note, the green wreath there down at the bottom, uh, and the golden crown, the bottom belongs uh, within it, uh, of the image, remind us that Christ would conquer death and he would bring eternal life to the world. So that the greenery there is meant to be a sign of, of, of eternal life, the evergreen, that it never dies again. Um, so, it's just a lot of beautiful literature. Star, I mean, the, the star is the symbol of the morning star. 
to be able to feast on him as well. And you first just as the animals would have feasted on the hand that had laid and what was to become his bed. This reality is highlighted by wheat uh, that foreshadows the Eucharist and the Lamb that points to his being the Lamb of God offered for the salvation of the world. So we see the wheat. The wheat. And I hear the seed from the Lamb. The Lamb presence there. The bottom panel has a simple icon of the pyro. Again, the, the X, the XP uh, is Christ. Uh, so anytime you see the key with the with the X on it, kind of like you have the, the, the anchor up front with the X, the key with the X is the name of Christ. Uh, so uh, it's, it's the, the symbol of Christ. So you'll see that sometimes in Westminster and other, other things in the church as well. So those two letters in the name of Christ, uh, it's interpreted by the God of Rainbow, uh, which in Old Testament is, uh, is an Old Testament image of God's fidelity to his promises. So we know that, uh, that whenever they were having a time on the ark, uh, part of the promise was uh, the great bow in the sky, rainbow. And so that was a sign of God fulfilling his promise that he would lead them to safety, would lead them to life. So our Lord comes as a fulfillment of that promise that they had for so many years. Those are the ten main windows here in the church. Uh, we can't all fit the confessional order in the stairwell, and so I'll just read them, uh, read through them briefly, and you can go through and kind of uh, make your way around to, to be able to look down uh, if you haven't, if you haven't seen it recently. So, uh, we'll start with number 11, it's the city flash uh, here in the confessional, behind where the, behind where the priest sits. Um, at the top, there are bells, uh, top of the Florida Lee, uh, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, descended upon Christ in his baptism and in the church at Pentecost. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit they were able to experience today the healing grace of God and the sacrament of reconciliation where we can cleanse of our sins and become pure as the doves of the soul. So they are reminded to us of the healing power of God and the reconciliation sacraments. And in stairwell, leading up to the choir loft, uh, this window features a lyre and a circle garnished by the lily of peace. This speaks to our choir members. Take note, choir members, um, that, uh, that each time they climb the stairs, that they ascend to be able to make music for the Lord, and to allow that music to become means of selling peace in the hearts Beautiful little, beautiful little addition there. As you see the little, the little lyre in the window. So, so those are uh, the windows in our church uh, in, in being able to, to learn about them myself. And, uh, and I was fascinated by it. So I've been, I noticed that I've been looking at the windows a lot more really I'm kind of like scary. Obviously, so I'm like looking at these windows now. So, so, yeah. so uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing for us to be able to come in and see the things in our church. Uh, we know that there's a whole lot more. Uh, the, well, quarterly, they're all on the top of the church, and uh, we've all moved from that It's a sign of the Trinity. Uh, I don't know if a few people have asked about that, but uh, it's the sign of, of the Trinity. So you've got the three, three parts uh, that are separate, but they're all bound together in one. About uh, a band and a So it's three uh, bound together as one. Uh, so that's a neat little, and of course, 